Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. I'm your host, Ben Young. And this week, we have a special guest host, Nikhil Bamakanti, who you've probably heard in previous episodes. And he's coming back today to tell us about an excellent case that he taught us about at a Grand Rounds that I thought would be great to share with everyone else again. To remind you, he's a current PGY3 resident at the Kellogg Eye Center at the University of Michigan. Thanks for coming back on, Nikhil. Ben, I'm really glad to be here. Awesome. So without further ado, can you tell us what you were consulted for that led to this interesting case? Absolutely. The consult was for a 75-year-old man with, quote, unequal pupils. Tell us a little bit more about the history. Like, how did he become aware of his unequal pupils? So he became aware of this gradually. He was having a nice, relaxing night watching TV, and he gradually noticed the onset of blurred vision in his right eye. So then it was only was it only when he got to the ED that they noticed that he had unequal pupils? That's correct. And, you know, I imagine the consult was probably something along the lines of asking what to do about this anisocoria. Can you help tell us what is anisocoria? So anisocoria is unequal pupil sizes. And uh, it's actually kind of an interesting word itself. It's a term that's derived from two Greek words. Aniso means unequal, and kore means pupil. But then there's actually a Latin suffix, ia, and that means abnormal condition. What? So is this an example of medicine just kind of mixing and mashing words until they sound cool? Like, yeah, you know, it could be. So we, we have a couple of mixed and matched words in medicine. For example... Uh, the term amaurosis fugax, which is a term that as ophthalmologists we would prefer not to use, uh, but it's something that's taught in med school. And that's actually also a combination of uh, Greek and Latin. The Greek part, amaurosis, means darkening and or obscure, and the Latin part, fugax, means fleeting. So it doesn't really make sense to combine those terms. And it seems to be like an unnecessarily obfuscating word, right? Like what you really mean is transient vision loss, which you can all understand, but we teach this terminology in med school for some reason. Yeah, I remember in med school, they were, uh, at least in my med school, there was this strong push to rename it as transient monocular vision loss. But, you know, clearly this term still uh Yeah, it still, still, still persists, but we can all continue the crusade against amaurosis fugax. It doesn't, <laughs> nothing about it makes sense. Anyways, you were consulted, you're seeing this patient, and how I think it's going to be the most useful for our listeners is to have Nikhil present the case. You'll have all the information that he had at the time. And then for we invite the listener to try to come up with a diagnosis before he tells us what it actually was. But hopefully it will be helpful as we were all thinking about, you know, what the answer could be is to start with a differential, even before you get a history. Start with differential so you know what to look out for on your history and physical. So Nikhil, what is the differential for anisocoria? Is it like 10 pages long? You know, it's actually not that long. Uh, there are a couple of ways to classify this. We will classify it in at least two ways during this episode to um, help us think about it. But from the outset, let's think about it as certain dangerous causes and other causes. That's how we think about a lot of things in medicine. What are the dangerous things that we want to rule out? What are the likely things that we want to rule out? And then what are the others? So in this case, dangerous causes of anisocoria would be a Horner syndrome or a third nerve palsy, a cranial nerve three palsy. Yeah, so those are the two big do not miss. I think that's, you know, those are the two big reasons why emergency room docs and everyone is concerned when they see anisocoria, right? Yeah, and, and Ben, what are some of maybe the other causes of anisocoria? So uh, other possibilities include adystonic pupil, pharmacologic uh, medriasis or dilated pupil, 
the possibly a physiologic dilated pupil, and then just that the iris is irregular from sphincter damage or some traumatic cause. So examples of that include surgery, blunt trauma, um, synechiae from uveitis or something like that, or even a congenital iris malformation. As, as uh, Nikhil pointed out, we can split up the differential into the things we actually care about because they are dangerous, horners and third nerve palsies, and then these other four things, pharmacologic, adiastonic, physiologic, and then sphincter damage. So, uh, Nikhil, do you want to kind of take it away and give us the rundown of everything that you had in terms of history and physical? Sure. So this patient had no past ocular history. His past medical history was notable for coronary artery disease, hypertension, hyperlipidemia. Surgically, he had actually just had a coronary artery bypass graft one month ago. He took aspirin, clopidogrel, metoprolol, pravastatin, and tamsulosin. There was no family history of stroke, TIA, aneurysm, or other neurologic disease. And he was not a former healthcare worker. He was retired, didn't garden, and in uh, no allergies on review of systems, no double vision, no pain, no trauma, no infectious signs or symptoms, no scalp tenderness, headache, cramping jaw pain while chewing, no proximal muscle or joint aches or fevers. And then for pertinent negatives, he did not take any inhaled bronchodilators, no motion sickness patches, and didn't take any eye drops. Some of the things you mentioned had me a bit worried. Now, what about on the exam? So in terms of vitals, this patient's blood pressure was 180 over 94. The pulse was 65, respiratory rate was 16, and temperature was 36.6. So, Nikhil, the big thing I'm worried about is that blood pressure, you know, 180 over 94. I imagine we don't have baselines to know he's been sitting there for a while. So you're telling me we have this nice elderly man who has known multiple risk factors, is pretty darn hypertensive and has anisocoria. You know, if I were the resident on-call right there, I got to shove him in the CT scanner myself, right? Well, maybe. I mean, I, I think it's fair to kind of pause and take stock. Is it's, it's one thing to talk about it in a podcast episode or on Grand Rounds, but we've all lived this. When we are the primary call resident, sometimes the only person with uh, ophthalmology training in the entire medical center, and at the same time, we ourselves maybe don't feel as comfortable as we might because we're early on in our call experience. And on top of that, it's the middle of the night, 2 a.m., and you have this patient with all these factors. It can be scary. We should check our own blood pressures as well. You know, so That's right. That's, if we match the patient, obviously you got to get the scanner, right? <laughs> that's step one. Um, but after you take your own blood pressure, step two is to, we're trying to figure out, hey, is this something that is benign? Is it something that is life-threatening or is it something in between? But the beauty of ophthalmology is that we can often gather objective, actionable data from our exam itself. With a good exam, we can definitively rule in some possibilities and rule out other possibilities. So we need a plan. Okay. So what's your approach? Well, for anisocoria, one really nice way to think about it, an exam-guided way, is to think about whether the anisocoria is worse in dim light worse in bright light, or the same in both dim and bright light. Okay, Okay. so tell us if it's equal in dim and bright light, what does that suggest? So if the anisocoria is equal in dim and in bright light, then that's physiologic anisocoria. And apparently, according to the BCSC, this is present in about 20% of people. So really not uncommon at all, one out of every five. Yeah. You too could have physiologic anisocoria. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Wait, so like the look to your right, look to your left. Yeah, exactly. One of y'all. But, but a couple more to the right and to the left. Yeah, look two to your right, two to your left. One of y'all got un- <laughs> So typically the difference is less than one millimeter and it may be more apparent in dim light. Now, I think this is kind of an interesting thought because um, it may actually just be a bit more apparent in dim light or it may be because when we are looking at pupils, we're probably actually thinking about area as opposed to diameter or radius because we're just looking at the size of that black dot. Now, as you know, right, so area varies with the square of diameter or radius. So if the diameter or radius increases a little bit, then there's a lot more area. So in dim light, a difference between the two might actually appear greater because there's a greater area on the larger pupil. Got it. So even though we're saying the difference is actually equal in dim and bright light, it may appear to be bigger, a, a bigger difference in dim light because of it's more based on the examiner thinking it one looks bigger than the other, even though the uh, the diameter may still be the difference in diameter may be the same. Right, same same difference in diameter, but different. Uh, but but greater difference in area. It's kind of why I think sometimes cup to disc ratio assessment of cup to disc ratio is challenging, sometimes yeah. flawed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a very similar idea. And you know, I think just a personal note to my suggestion to um, residents who get consult for this is actually try to use an actual ruler. Like use like you know on the back of Q tips, there's a little millimeter ruler on all those in a lot of your near vision cards to like actually try to measure what the difference is. Uh, between the, the two people. Is that way you don't get tricked by your own brain? A lot of near vision cards have a lot of oh, yeah, people sizes the on it. Circles on yes, it. Yeah. so you can use that too. Yeah, so I guess, okay, so so that's for if it, the difference is equal, but let's say the antiquaria is worse in, actually worse in dim or actually worse in bright light. What does it actually mean? Okay, so here's a really easy way to think about it. In the dark, you need to dilate. In the light... You need your pupils to constrict. So if it's worse in the dark, that means there's a failure to dilate the pupil. So the problem is with the smaller pupil, the pupil that did not dilate. Gotcha. And then if the anisocori is worse in the light, in bright illumination, then that was a failure for the pupil to constrict. So it's a problem with the larger pupil. Gotcha. Okay. So hopefully that framework is helpful for people. As um, as well as thinking about what the whole differential is as Nikhil comes back and describes what the examination looks like. So can you tell us what the ophthalmic exam was? Sure. So the visual acuity on the right was 2025 and on the left was 2020. Now, of course, uh, you like to talk about ophthalmic vitals and some of your other podcasts, right? I do. <laughs> Vision, pupils, pressure. Can you teach us how to actually assess pupils on exam? Absolutely not. So No. Okay, fine. Fine. So... So you definitely want a consistent light source. I think most people like the thin-off light. Um, you want like a diffuse illumination. So it's that curved muscle light that should be available um, in, in most ophthalmic exam rooms. Because if you use something like a cell phone light, it's usually a little bit too diffuse and broad to like be able to check people's accurately. But the, the thin-off is quite nice illumination. So the best way to do it is to first indirectly illuminate the pupils because you want to see what they look like um, without you overtly constricting them. So you don't want to shine the light directly in both of the pupils because then their pupils will constrict. So how I usually do it is start by shining kind of from below, like below the nose, so you can see what the pupils look like with indirect illumination. Then also a key thing that 
if you listen to a Dr. Trope episode before, um, he will have reviewed, is you have them look at a distance target. If, if they look at a near target, then they're going to accommodate and their pupils will constrict and um, it'll be hard to see. And you definitely get out of their way because if you are an attractive target like Dr. Bomakanti, who's with me here, then they will fixate on you and they'll be constricted. And then you can try to do this in um, lighter and darker light. So that's how you can test for efferent function of the pupils, i.e. what the degree of antisocoria that they have. So Nikhil, what did this patient have? Pupils were six millimeters on the right, three millimeters on the left in light, and six millimeters OU in dark. The right mm -hmm. was minimally reactive. There was no afferent pupillary defect. And there was also minimal constriction to a near stimulus. In the right eye. In the right eye. Okay. So listeners, again, kind of digest that. Six in the right, three in the left, in the light, six in both in the dark. No APD. Uh, so we'll let Nikhil uh, take it away with the rest of the examination, or at least a pertinent positives in ex his examination. And then we'll let you think for a bit to figure out what the answer is and how quickly we need to shove this patient's head into a scanner. So what's the rest of the exam? On external examination, there was no ptosis. On extraocular motility um, exam, it was full in both eyes. The intraocular pressure was normal, and the confrontational fields were full in both eyes. And on slit lamp examination, overall normal, uh, notably the iris of the right eye was round. It was minimally reactive, and there was no sectoral atrophy or palsy. So remember, you know, listener, this is basically all, this is all the information that Nikhil had. And, you know, I'm going to say it was two in the morning. I don't know what, what it actually was. And, you know, he has to was, make a yeah. call at this point to help take care of it. Was it actually two in the morning? Yeah, it was like two or 2.30. Oh, God, I'm so good. And, um, you know, you have to make a decision now. I mean, um, you know, even if he was calling like um, the attending, the, if you were the attending, we, some of you might be soon, you have to make a call now. One thing I'll point out is, you know, Folks may be waiting for the drop testing to try to help figure out what this is, but we will both argue, as well as a neuro-ophthalmology attending who was on call that night, that you actually don't need the drop testing. You can do it to confirm what the diagnosis will end up being. So we'll give listeners some time to think about the, the findings presented so far and come up with what they want to do next. And then the key will take us through his thought process and what actually happened next. This patient had anisocoria that was greater in bright light. There was no iris damage or sectoral iris palsy. There was no response to near and no ptosis or reductional deficits. This tells us that it was probably not a third nerve palsy, also not sphincter trauma or an adiatonic pupil. Uh, and the diagnosis was most likely pharmacologic medriasis, which was confirmed with the 1% pilocarpine test. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. You are claiming this is pharmacologic anisocoria, but we, you did, you know, you presented the pretty darn good history, Nikhil. I didn't hear anything in there that could pharmacologically dilate this guy's people. You even said these weird things like there's not a healthcare worker, or they don't guard it, or, you know, whatever random boards review kind of things that you might think of. So I would say it's pretty bold of you to say it's pharmacologic anisocoria. 
you know, it, it can feel that way. Um, and I think this is, again, one of the beauties of an exam-driven specialty like ours. Um, but it also reveals something that's interesting. I think it speaks to the art of medicine. So I had mentioned that this patient did not garden. Yeah. And he told me he didn't garden. In response to my question, sir, do you garden? Now, um, it turns out that actually... He had a plant at home, but it was inside, not outside, oh. and it was by the sink. And the plant uh, was an angel's trumpet plant. What's I don't know. That? Yeah, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with this. I was not, but it contains uh, parasympathetic. It contains atropine-like substances, um, some sources of atropine and scopolamine and stuff like that. Um, but uh, and and he actually did have contact with the angel's trumpet plant uh, oh. earlier that day. So this is, I think, this just reveals some of the beauty of, of medicine, right? This is a human interaction where um, my question, do you garden, was interpreted literally, right? He, he thought I was asking him about the physical act of gardening. But really what I intended to ask him was, did you have contact with plant matter? Uh, and that imprecision of language led to him responding in the negative. No, I, no, sir, I don't garden. It kind of comes back around to our, you know, little linguistic discussion at the beginning, right? Like the precision of language can sometimes feel arbitrary, but there's also some like some importance to it, you know, especially in this case, you know, you saved the guy from getting his brain irradiated because one, you thought about the whole pathophysiology and this border view stuff, but then, you know, asking the follow-up question to figure out exactly what's going on really saved him. Yeah, I thought I thought it was just a just a beautiful example of uh, the ophthalmic exam and um, history taking. Uh, I guess just to finish us off, you know, you mentioned the one percent pilocarpine test. Can you tell us what that showed or why we do that in these cases? Absolutely, I'd be happy to. So we have to think about pharmacologic medriasis, right? Which is this drug-induced dilation that causes paralysis of the entire iris sphincter. Now that's in contrast to a tonic pupil that causes segmental sphincter paralysis. So when you have this drug-induced dilation that's caused by atropine, right, an anticholinergic, um, the full-strength pilocarpine, which is the 1% pilocarpine, will not reverse the medriasis. But the full-strength pilocarpine um, will overcome um, the medriasis that's caused by an 80-tonic pupil or a third nerve palsy. Right. I'm sure the other, you know, major things in, the, in that differential. And then just to kind of round out our board review knowledge, you know, I don't think this is practically used that much, but uh, in theory, you know, then you might wonder, okay, well, if it does constrict with a 1% pilocarpine, is it a third nerve palsy or is it an 80s tonic pupil? So the theoretical thing you should do first is put in dilute pilocarpine. So that's one-tenth dilution of the 1%, 0.1% pilocarpine. And just, you, just, you know, practically you have to dilute that yourself. I would use like a 1cc syringe and put a couple drops of the... Um, the 1% uh, pilocarpine, and then dilute that with some BSS. And the dilute pilocarpine should cause the 80s tonic people to constrict. You know, we could do a whole episode on 80s tonic people, but it's thought that those peoples are hypersensitized to, um, to pilocarpine. And then, but that dilute would not constrict a third nerve palsy. So if it doesn't constrict with the dilute, then um, it's not an 80s tonic people. But if it does constrict with the 1%, then it's a third nerve palsy, and if it doesn't construct with either, then it's pharmacologic. So that's your kind of way to walk through those three causes of um, anisocoria that's greater in bright light. So one thing I, I 
wanted to highlight that's separate from this topic is that if you want to track what your uh, ACGME cases look like over time, Nikhil made this data visualizing um, program that you can download at a link that we'll um, put in the description below that you can just download your cases from the ACGME, put in this program, it'll visualize cases over time, cases by, you know, like the, the different subspe- uh, subtypes of cases in a really aesthetically pleasing way. Thanks, Ben. And this is definitely a work in progress, but it's up uh, if anybody wants to check it out. And the idea is we already log our cases in the ACGME case logger, which is very good. You already can run some reports and get uh, numbers there and so forth. I was just curious about uh, getting a sense for a little bit more granular detail. So what you can also do is download the data as a spreadsheet from ACGME, and I have instructions online uh, for how to do that. Um, And then if you just upload it into this uh, app, then you'll be able to visualize, for example, how many cases you did as primary surgeon and how many as assistant surgeon. You can break it down by the service that you're on or actually the type of case it was and just view the distribution over time. And the idea is that it's it's um, it's intended to be a, a slightly nicer way to just get a sense for your progression as a, a surgeon in training. So actually, um, it, it, the code's all there as well in GitHub if anybody is um, so inclined to make the many improvements that it needs, I'd be happy to hear from you. Or if you just want to use it and uh, Uh, and leave it at that, then absolutely please do. So that's all we have for this week. If you liked what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes4ears with number four. And if you want to support the podcast, then a rating review, um, you know, you can leave a rating review specifically about um, Nikhil's episode or about the podcast in general on iTunes or anywhere you found our podcast. Thanks again for your time and we'll see you next time. Thanks Nikhil again for coming on. Ben, thanks for having me on the show again. It It was a lot of fun. Bye everyone.